reading of God's Word and open your Bibles to John chapter 4, you'll find that on page 888 of our Pew Bible. <clears throat> this portion of Scripture known affectionately as the woman at the well uh, covers verses 1 through 42. We'll cover that, but we'll be only be reading together the first 26 verses. It's John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, have asked for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's quickly ask the Lord to bless. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word together this morning. As John would have it, Holy Spirit, use these words to help us know our Redeemer's love for us just a little better. And by it, belief in him grow on to eternal life. For Lord Jesus, we are indeed yours. Be glorified and bless your people this morning is our joint prayer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The annals of church history has all but forgotten the name Stephen Langton. He lived from 1150 to 1228. And yet it's to this man we owe in our life today, two of the things that we love and cherish the most. For it was Langton that was the author of the Magna Carta, the document leading to the binding rule of law and individual liberty for the first time in history. And it is because of this man, Stephen Langton, that we can even call our text this morning, John chapter 4. For it was Langton, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, that first proposed our modern chapter and verse divisions of the Scriptures in 1221. It wouldn't be until 1560 that the first English Bible, the Geneva Bible, was printed with all Old and New Testament chapters and verses. But we have today Langton's work in every copy of our scriptures. Langton did a particularly wonderful job in the book of John. As we've already seen in chapters 1 through 3, uh, particularly in the last two, chapters 2 and 3, John always begins his section with a few verses of clarification. And unlike the other gospel writers, John makes very clear to us, doesn't he? the two main points that he had for even writing the book. I call your attention again to John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, because this verse tells us not only what the main teaching points of our text this morning is, it tells us what at least two of the main teaching points of every passage in the book is. That's John 20, 30 through 31. John says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written. This gospel of John that will take the ever bit of one year to go through together. But these are written so that you may believe, one, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And two, by believing, you may have life. In his name. So every faithful preacher must have the same goal, the same points, at least two in every sermon in John. There must be something about who Jesus Christ was and is and the gospel. How by believing on this Savior, you can have eternal life. Yet it's so easy for preachers to get distracted 
with those interesting background first few verses that John puts in front of every main narrative. A simple look at the sermons uh, and commentaries on the book of John will see this. But if you look careful with me at the first six verses, we'll see what we're talking about for these introductory remarks, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. I want to know more about that, don't you? Why wasn't Jesus baptized? How did he hear that the Pharisees were planning this? And then why did that cause him to leave immediately up to to go to uh, Galilee? Good questions. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, your version may say he must needs go through Samaria. And if you know your Bible geography, from Jerusalem, uh, it was a straight north travel to go to Samaria and through Samaria, and you had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Matter of fact, if Jesus was going to go to his own hometown of Nazareth, it was virtually a total north trek up. But the Jews normally didn't do that, did they? They crossed the Jordan and went on the east side, so they did not have to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. This is the ancient city of Shechem, directly in the middle of what we now call the West Bank in Israel. That whole section in the West Bank, Sychar or ancient Shechem is right in the middle. And oh, what a history, not only today we have, but in ancient history. For we know from Genesis, this is the place that God and Abraham met. We know this is the place that that Rebekah drew water for Eleazar, his company, and his livestock, and where Rebekah answered the proposal of marriage by Eleazar to go back to Isaac. We also remember, don't we, the very bones of Joseph were were moved and buried right where our story takes place. But why Sychar? Jonathan Edwards reminds us that it was after the Assyrian captivity that the Jews changed the name of Shechem because it had such a spiritual and eternal meaning to, the, to Israel. They changed the name from Shechem to Sychar. And Sychar in ancient Syriac means lazy, worthless drunks. Such did the Jews think of the Samaritans and vice versa. Finally, six, Jacob's well was there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph are all deeply intertwined into this place. And I can't make this point strong enough for you. All of these subpoints are important. And I encourage you to own a good or a couple of good commentaries and some Bible dictionaries to look up these verse, these interverses in, in all of the narratives in John, because there's lots of great, great stuff in there. But never, ever forget, 
as wonderful as these subpoints are, including two that we have in our text with living water and worship, as good as they are, they are history and helps. The main purpose of John and our triune God is always going to be the same over the next year. It's the man, Jesus Christ, and salvation by belief in him. So keep your Bibles open over the next 20 minutes or so, for hopefully we'll see John's outline under two headings. First, we'll spend most of our time this morning just letting the text speak to us around Jesus' meeting in verses 7 through 26. And then finally, we'll see opened up to us Jesus' mission and our mission in 27 through 41. The meeting and the mission. First then, the meeting, this divinely appointed encounter between the Samaritan woman and the Savior. You know, I sat with my family last Friday night in an amazing restaurant. It's a floating steakhouse on Lake Coeur d'Alene. If you've never been to Lake Coeur d'Alene, you're missing the Garden of Eden of America. Except none of us in this room, maybe all of us together could afford one of the homes on Lake Coeur d'Alene, but maybe not. Since John Elway and gangs moved in, it's just, we've been priced out of it. As a matter of fact, we met a guy, I met a guy at my, my niece's wedding who got taxed out of his property on Lake Coeur d'Alene because it's worth so much he could not afford the taxes anymore and had to sell the property. But I digress. This meal was amazing. The weather, the view, the company, my family, the stakes, everything was perfect. And if you would have been there through the meal, you would have had heard a constant mummering, uh, muttering of, mmm, ah, mm, isn't this great? Oh, did you get more of this and taste mine? Mm, oh. We just ummed and awed for an hour. It was wonderful. And if this text were a meal, we would be umming and awing throughout as every morsel we would enjoy, knowing and understanding that God's divine appointment, God's sovereignty of election, his goodness and mercy are the seasonings of every bite of our text. And here it is, starting at verse 6, the meeting. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. See first how John portrays Jesus. First, wearied, Jesus in his humanity, exhausted from walking all morning, probably five or six hours. It's the sixth hour, noon. Jesus is physically exhausted, hungry, thirsty, truly human. Hunger, thirst, exhaustion. And in the same thought, truly God. For Jesus in his deity, his omniscience, knows exactly what and who is coming. The Son of God, fully, truly man, fully, truly God. And we can only speculate at this point what would be going through his mind, tired, exhausted, knowing all of the biblical data 
and significance of the very place that he stood. We, we wonder what might have been going through his mind, his lineage, all that had happened. But his eyes and his heart on this day were not on the past. They were on one thing. His eyes were squarely on the horizon, thinking about the encounter that he knew was going to happen. And here she comes. And we'll see the doctrine of divine sovereign election come to life as the Lord of the universe watches her and her pot come closer and closer and closer. Now, I doubt anyone here would give a testimony and say, I came to Christ as a result of taking a clay pot in the desert. I doubt that. Yet, Every single one of us has come to Christ with no less of a miracle than what happens between the Lord and this woman. Because we all have come, including this woman, the same way. We have come according to divine election, responding to a seeking Savior. Every one of us. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked by one of his uh, members of his church one time, they asked, Pastor, why do you stress sovereign election so much when so many good Christians disagree? Spurgeon's answer is a perfect segue to our meeting before us. But Spurgeon said, Ma'am, why do I stress the doctrine of election? He said, Because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. I am also quite sure, madam, that he chose me before I was born, for he never would have chosen me afterward. And he said, he also must have elected me for reasons totally unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself that he should have ever looked upon me with such special love. Oh, is that not the cry of every redeemed heart here today? Is that not the cry of your heart? Let's see it in action. Back to the text. Here it is. Verse 6 continues. It's about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And here's what we already know, don't we? That the drawing of the water was done by the women, done mostly in the cool of the evening or very early in the morning, never at high noon or in the heat of the day for obvious reasons. And it was many times a social event after they draw, well, how's John? He's doing good. How are the kids? Wonderful. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. And they put the head down. Why is this woman by herself in the heat of the day? It'll be revealed, but for now, verse 7 continues. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city 
to buy food. Think about this. Our text here before us, verses 7 through 26, represent the longest, deepest, most profound, and most personal conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Scriptures, save maybe his father in prayer in John 17. Let that sink in. This is also a real request. Jesus is hot. He's tired. But what an example for us that even in his distress, he's also there to open this woman's heart. But we see from the beginning, this woman who is never named, can you imagine that? From all eternity, we're going to see, oh, there she is. Who's that? The woman at the well. We don't know her name. Perhaps we will know someday. But she's having none of it. Look at verse 9. She's almost snarky in her response. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus has just thrown all religious tradition directly out the window. She, is, she was right. Jewish men did not talk to any women in public, especially not Samaritan women. And her comment about the Jews not dealing with the Samaritans is a little bit difficult because aren't the disciples at this particular moment in dealing with the Samaritans buying food? And the answer to that is yes. But if we know that what the law actually taught then, we would know that it was, not, it, it was against the law to have any intimate conversations with Samaritans and to share any utensils with them, which would have meant you couldn't sit down and eat with them, but also very significant to what's happening in our story. But Jesus quickly goes, doesn't he? into what he is there for. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now the Samaritans were really known as half-breeds. They were known as half, a half-breed religion and a half-breed people, mostly because of their mixing after the, <coughs> the captivity with the Assyrians. But the religion only allowed for the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That's all that they believed. They denied all of the prophets, which comes up significant in a minute. But at this point of the narrative, neither we nor the Samaritan woman know what living water is. According to Genesis check 26, verse 19, living water is moving water. It's spring water. And it's at the very bottom of a spring-filled well. What they would do is the spring water would fill to a certain height. Rainwater and the table would fill it up. And it's the living water that was underneath. So the woman says to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water then? She's still thinking 
temporally. She's still thinking about physical water. She is saying, and she is right, Jesus, you have to go down with a bucket 100 feet to get that living water. And then in in really her last act of belligerence, she says, in effect, and who do you think you are? If the well water was good enough for our common patriarch Jacob, who was drinking off the top of the well, who are you? Look at verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did our sons and his livestock. Not planning to give this man a drink, she has had about enough. Who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, I don't know about you. I remember those days well. The days the Spirit convicts. The days that you say, I will live how I want to live. Who are you to tell me? I know you. But she couldn't have imagined, and neither could we, what would happen next. She doesn't know it, and neither did we during our conversions. But Jesus has her exactly where he wants her. Verse 13, again, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. And the woman actually again says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here. She's almost there. Yet she can't escape the physical water. Sadly, In most evangelism, I wouldn't say most, a lot of evangelism that's done today, this is how far we get. We get them to ask Jesus into their heart. We get them to have a desire to have these things, live a Christian life, be forgiven. Come forward. Jesus loves you. Accept him. He loves you exactly as you are. He will give you physical water and take care of your needs. Just come, come. Yet Jesus knows at this point he's beginning to capture her desire, but he must and will not stop until he has her heart. Neither we nor the woman could have anticipated what comes next. It's why Jesus came at this exact time, at this exact place, for this exact woman, so he could utter these next exact words. She has the desire for living water, but she needs to feel not only her desire, but her desperate need of this water. Verse 16, Jesus, still gazing into the soul of her eyes, says, go call your husband and come here. We, we feel her response. Wait, wait, what? What did you say? The tension is palatable. The woman answers, I have no husband. In the previous exchanges with Jesus, in verse 11 or verse 9, she uses 11 words. 
In, in verses 11 and 12, she uses 42 words. She's very into the conversation. 13 words in verse 15. And we can feel at this point her entire being change. Her countenance changes. As here, John records for us only three words in her response. Oik, which is negative. It's a no. Oik. Ego, I have. Andra, not I have husband. Just three words. And as the eyes of her creator, her Messiah, her Lord penetrate her soul, it's the living word of Hebrews chapter 4. These words from Jesus are living words, they're active. They're sharper than any two-edged sword. They're doing their work. They pierce the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows. They discern this woman's thoughts and intents of her heart. And in case you don't know the next verse in, in Hebrews 4, it's, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But we are all naked, exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. All of us. Those same piercing eyes. You are right in saying, I have no husband, Jesus says. And it's almost as if we see this compassion and 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 wrapping of his emotional arms around this woman, he says, you are right, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, and oh, how can't we relate to this? She instantly knows her life has been boiled down to only two propositions, just like ours. This man is true. I either repent and follow him now completely or not at all. Living the same life and being his follower is not and has never been an option for the believer. She knew he was a Jew. She is now convinced that he's at least a prophet. But who he really is, she, it's still not fathomable to her. Yet strangely, she's not afraid, doesn't show any signs of fear. A comfort that she has never known is forming in her heart. She's, had an she's never had an encounter like this, nor could she have. This one knows everything about her, yet instead of feeling shame, the shame that caused her even to come out at noon and not be around the other woman. The shame of self-shame that has led her to years of despair as she looks back at Christ. Could this actually be acceptance from this prophet? Could this be God's love? Oh, listen. To be completely and utterly known, yet also completely and utterly forgiven. 
can only happen through the electing love of Jesus Christ. Woman, believe me. Oh, she knows he's a prophet. And now she wants to ask him some religious questions. And Jesus just simply says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, they were standing right at the edge of Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. 21, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking those to worship him. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus looks at her and why her and says, I who speak to you, woman, am he. Thus begins John's words from John 20. Jesus revealing himself as to who he is. And this, this starts a, a ration of I am's from Jesus in the book of John. I am the Messiah, he says here. Chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Chapter 15, I am the vine. You are the branches. And he says, I am God. Before Moses was, I am. She knew he was a Jew. She knew he was a prophet and never believed in one before. And now she knows he is the Messiah. That's the meeting. I will quickly see the mission established by the events that follow. And Christ's mission is very easy for us to know, and we already know it, don't we? Christ's mission is, number one, to seek and to save that which is lost. And number two, to keep those that are found forever. And boy, do we compliment thing, uh, complicate things, don't we? To see Jesus' mission, to see him on point as we get ready to close, let's simply read together the end, to the end of the passage with some brief comment Oh, the timing, verse 27. Just then, just as he revealed himself as the Messiah, just then the disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? And why are you talking with her? And then this very unique uh, set of words put together a very unique way. So the woman says, left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You know, a lot of people will, will, will explain this, that she was so excited that she understood who Jesus was. She just forgot her pot and left. But that's not what the text says. The text says specifically, she on purpose left her water jar. Why did she do that? Well, I think the answer is Jesus gets his drink. They come back from the food, and she had been drawing on that pot, 
recognizes who he is. She leaves it there, specifically there, the text says. She leaves the pot full and goes. And Jesus gets his drink. Fifth, uh, verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. We see at the very end now that Jesus not only loves this woman, this unlovable woman, that he has come and drawn to himself, he also loves those that are already his. Look with me at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have no food, I, I have food to eat that you know not of. And what do they say? So the disciples said to one another, did somebody stop by Chick-fil-A and get him something to eat? What? What? Has anyone brought him something to eat? The problem, brothers and sisters, with the disciples, they have the same problem the woman did. She couldn't get off living water not being physical. They can't get off food being physical. It's the same problem. It's the reason why his disciples need the gospel just as much as this Samaritan woman needs it. Jesus loves, and he uses this as a teaching time to what is their mission in life. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him. Uh, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His disciples are stuck. And he says, verse 35, do not say that there are four months and then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you, disciples, my friends, to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The fields are white unto harvest. The final results in 39, the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, but you notice that, that, that woman's testimony is wonderful, but it's, it's never going to save. Look at 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said we believe for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. As we close this morning, just two quick thoughts of application for us, and you should be able to tell what they are. Number one, have you tasted of that living water? And you know if you have. Is that living water, that gift of eternal life, welling up within you? Do you have that desire that this woman had? He is seeking and saving that which is lost. Has the Savior found you? If there's any doubt, close.
Prince Philip of Saxony came to Martin Luther and he said, I've got a dear friend that's dying. Will you write a treatise for him and help him? Which Luther did and brilliantly called his treatise, Treatise to a Dying Man. (laughs) And Luther just tells him three things to do. He says, number one, if you've never closed with Christ, close immediately. And he doesn't, and, and, and he goes on to say, and don't equivocate with yourself, have I or have I not? You know if you have, and if you haven't, close. Close with him. And then Luther quickly says, and two things you, do, you also need to do after you close with Christ. Number one, if you've offended anybody, find them and ask for forgiveness. And if anybody's, if you, if anybody's offended you, forgive them immediately. Die. <laughs> That's Luther's point. Have you tasted that living water? Is it welled up within you? You know, we get glimpses sometimes, don't we? I've got a good friend and we tease each other when we, because we're both emotional guys. And, and sometimes, it, as I was just reading this text this morning, you get welled up. And, and uh, my friend calls it, uh, hey, Trigger, did you get a little dew from heaven? And that's that, that's that living water storing up, and, and that water's got to come out. Finally, to us, members of the body of Christ, you've closed with Christ. It's the message that has just been given to his disciples. It's for us. The gospel message is, intent, is needed by us, just like it's needed for that Samaritan woman. As a matter of fact, aren't we all just Samaritans ourselves? The Samaritans and this woman were not their enemies, and the Samaritans that we come in contact with are not our enemies either. They're just in the field ready for harvest. What an opportunity lies before us. Oh, God is moving amongst us. I'm telling you, I feel it. I have been an elder in this denomination since 1998. I believe firmly God is moving amongst us. And I would simply ask you whether you're a student, whether you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, 50s, or like me, 60s and beyond, what could you be doing better for your life? What could you possibly be doing better for your life than investing everything you have, your time, your treasure, your talent, your all, to the cause of Jesus Christ right here. I am not a prophet nor the son of one, but God is at work here, and I can't wait to see what he's going to do over the next coming months and years. Well, it was 1215. Stephen Langton began the work on his first draft They call it over there simply Magna Carta. They don't put the the in there. Magna meaning the great charter, Magna Carta. As the go-between between the land barons at war with King John and the church, this man of God begins to write the treatise that they'd pretty much agreed on. But as he begins to pen this, he writes in section one, petition one, something they weren't expecting. And before any mention of the rights of individuals, of the rights of the landowners, Langton pens this. 
Petition 1, Section 1 of the Magna Carta. The English church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties unimpaired. That's the first line of the Magna Carta. And in a sermon shortly after at the day of Pentecost, his Pentecost sermon, he pleads with the Holy Spirit to come and help do what he's promised to do in the church. And it's exactly what's happened in this passage. This is what this man of God who gave you your chapter and verse division says. He says, oh, Holy Spirit, now come to the church. Come and clean that which is dirty. Water that which is dry. Heal what is wounded. Bend what is stiff. Warm what is cold. And guide what so easily goes off the road. That's our lives. May this be so here at Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you for the testimony of this Samaritan woman. And what she needed is just exactly what his disciples and we need, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give it to us every week, we pray. Amen.